there is no academy presiding over English telling us which word is right and which word isn't. It is a democracy. Um, so we, we kind of all decide through usage. Hello and welcome to the Waterstones podcast. I'm Will Rycroft and in this episode we're going to indulge our love of words, the building blocks of every book we read, and look at how language shapes and is shaped by us. A little later I'll be speaking with writer Ellie Williams, whose story collection A Trib and Other Stories showed her clear fascination with the possibilities of language. Her debut novel, The Liar's Dictionary, continues this love and takes us right inside the world of definition itself and the trap of the Mount Weasel. If you don't know what that is, then all will be revealed later. But first, we're going to go to Dictionary Corner itself. Susie Dent will be familiar to anyone who has watched Countdown over the years. As the arbiter of all things lexicographical, she is of course the right person to create a book called Word Perfect, in which she shares the stories behind a word or phrase for every day of the year. She spoke to me about a few of her favourites, where her logophilia comes from, and how on earth she found herself on TV in the first place. Susie, thank you so much for joining me on the Waterstones podcast, first of all. Thank you for having me on. Um, we're going to talk words. Uh, you are, of course, the perfect person to be talking about words. But I want to know when Susie Dent, who, of course, we all know from our TV screens, first became obsessed with words, because you clearly are. And I wonder whether this was always the case or whether there was a moment in your life where you first kind of got the bug. <sighs> um both is the confusing answer to that one um, because I think I've always been drawn in to the written word and um, I always tell the story of either sitting in the bath and marvelling over shampoo bottles and what, what you know, let's face it, must have been the most boring ingredients, but somehow they look really <laughs> exotic to me. Um, but also going on family trips, always to the freezing south coast, because my dad loved the sea. And, um, you know, my sister, very beautiful, very glamorous, would be sitting reading an incredibly fun novel or something, or, mm. you know, looking through her makeup collection. And I would be stuck inside a French or German vocabulary book and feeling really excited um just just getting lost in that world and it's strange I can't explain why I wanted to amass as many words as I could it wasn't to do brilliantly at school although I was a complete swat it was just because I just wanted to lose myself in that world and whenever we got to the freezing south coast I never wanted to get out the car um, I just wanted to stay in and, and stay in that world. So, you know, it's strange. I can't really explain that. But when it comes to a specific catalyst, I think um, I, I my love, my real love, my first love was with German. And I think I started learning German at exactly the right time. Um, I was... Um, you know, just I, French, I started quite early, but German I came to, I guess, when I was about 12 or 13. Mm. And I just loved the sound of it, the um, the kind of organisation of it, um, everything. I mean, it's quite a quirky language. It's not as regimented as people think. Yeah. But um, it's just, yeah, I, I just got completely obsessed with that world. And I think there's a famous quote by Goethe, um, the great German writer, and he said something like, French is, French is a beautiful park, English is a country garden, and German is a deep, dark forest. I'm paraphrasing <laughs> terribly there. But, uh, you know, I don't think English is actually um, a pretty garden. I think there's way more to it than that. But it's totally true about the sort of gnarliness of German and how you kind of, you know 
trace it through and and just can speak for sentences and then add a verb on at the end it's it just for me was was the most beautiful language and I'm always always trying to convince people that it's not the guttural harsh ugliness that you know that they assume it's actually incredibly lyrical I mentioned obviously at the beginning that many people will, will know you from Dictionary Corner uh, mm. on Countdown and now of course 8 out of 10 cats does Countdown. Um, you got that sort of gig if you like because you were working at Oxford University Press, is that right? That's right, yes. Yeah. So it was not a TV career, that was not what I had planned. <laughs> um, I'd, um, I'd studied here and then I went over to America, honestly I didn't have a clue what I wanted to do so I went over to the States um, and studied there for a while and German all the way again came back and got a job working on bilingual dictionaries at Oxford University Press again I was indulging my love of um, foreign languages and um, well basically Countdown had an arrangement with Oxford University Press um, whereby they would supply the press would supply supply people to sit in dictionary corner and be the arbiter of words on the show and my boss famously asked me three times whether I would do it and three times I said no um because that just wasn't me really I'm happiest flying below the radar always and um anyway eventually I said yes because he put a little bit of pressure on me and I went um the evidence unfortunately is still there on YouTube um (laughs) I was terrified and I always say to people like you know they always say that I, they always say I look terrified and actually it's quite a relief because when I watch it I feel like I look incredibly arrogant because I'm just frozen <laughs> and my back is as stiff as a rod um but yes that first show for me didn't go particularly well but thank god they you know they kept going with me well so you talk about sort of being nervous but of course you've been doing it for a long time now and there mm. also there is this the sort of the spin-off if you like of eight out of ten cats does mm. countdown is a very different beast in terms of its tone mm. and for somebody who was very nervous about about being on television you have been asked to do some really quite extraordinary things <laughs> on that program and is that just a question of I suppose over time getting more and more confidence and, and enjoying that sort of television aspect yes as long as it doesn't involve dancing I'm, I'm <laughs> up for anything um I just I have basically in order to dance properly I have to be very drunk and it has to be very dark um otherwise I just <laughs> I just can't do it um but yes I've had motorbikes you know just basically launch themselves off a platform just centimeters above my face um I've had to do very weird things to Joe Wilkinson in a horse outfit um <laughs> I've had Nick Helm sitting on the desk serenading me two inches from my face um yes I but honestly I do feel I'm up for anything on that show what I have realized over time is that I'm not a comedian so at the beginning when we started I was very nervous because I thought I don't, I'm just not going to be funny and for any audience <laughs> any audience member that comes along they'll know we record for two and a half hours for that show for each show and then they yeah. edit back the introductions can sometimes take an hour before <laughs> they get to introducing me in the corner or the guest sitting next to me and that hour has been full of comedy and absolutely full of laughs and you know it's and by the time it gets to me and Jimmy says so Susie can you think of any <laughs> funny American words I'm like I now have to be funny um and quite often I'm not also I have to also get my revenge because as you will know his introductions to me are ruthless ruthless yes, yes. so um 
yeah, it's a lot to pack in. But now, now that he's less respectful, I actually weirdly feel more comfortable um, because <laughs> I know my role. If I can, if I can get a comeback in, then that's great. But I don't have to be funny. I feel like the pressure is sort of off. I just do what I I do. Rachel does what she does, yeah. and um, you know we we retain our countdown rules. But we just yeah, we just don't stop laughing. Our faces are genuinely aching by the end of that show. <laughs> The straight woman in the corner. Yes. Uh, I mean, it's the th- what I'm amazed by when I watch either program actually is, and you'll be able to clear this up, is that when they go to Dictionary Corner and, and we find out what words they could have found with whatever letters are on the board, mm. do you do are you working those words out yourself, or have you got some kind of uh, computer assistance in terms of finding things out, or do you literally just know all the words? Just um, let's sort that out. Okay, I think n- neither of those apply. So um, I or well, none of them. I um, have. I do come up with most of the words myself. Um, Many of them are, you know, it's really circular. So I will see the same things over and over. And and it's Mm. just practice. I've been doing it for ages. Having said that, I do have off days. But also the gallery upstairs, so the producer particularly, who's absolutely brilliant at the game, Damien, he plays along too. So if he comes up with something amazing, he will say, oh, there's do-do-do. Um, but he's not using a computer ever. He, mm. None of us use an anagram finder or anything like that. And the laptop in front of me is simply um, the Oxford Dictionary that I would be using in print form, but it's more up-to-date, uh, the online version. Um, but most of them are mine. The other thing I'm trying to do during the 30 seconds is um, try and predict what the contestants are going to come up with and check to see whether that's in. Um, because quite often, you know, they might come up with a, this sounds very technical, but a comparative or a superlative that has to be specified in the dictionary. And if it's not, yeah. they can't have it. So I will check that. So there's a lot going on in that 30 seconds, but we don't have any longer and nor do we use any computer. Okay. I I, I now have even more respect that I know it's got 100% <laughs> brain power. That's very impressive. Uh, well, um, for all of us, it's a collective effort. <laughs> <laughs> um, your, your book, Word Perfect, basically has a, a word for every day of the year. Mm. And whilst I would love to go through every single one of them, <laughs> uh, we're not going to have time for that. I mean, I thought we could start maybe with looking at the words. So we're recording this actually on the 21st of September. Mm. Um, and so... In, on the 21st of September in the book, a flick of hairs is the phrase that you picked out. Uh, yeah. And that's because you're looking at the, the idea of collective nouns for, yes. for things. And what I find fascinating is this idea of who gets to decide mm. what the collective noun is for something. And as you point out in that sort of section, a lot of them come from one particular book. Could you tell us a bit more about that? Yes, it's really odd. So quite often you will get asked as a lexicographer, what's the correct term for this, that and the other? Mm. Um, and correct is always a bit of a tricky term for lexicographers these days because um we are famously descriptive. We are not prescriptive. So there is no academy presiding over English um, telling us which word is right and which word isn't. It is a democracy. Um, so we, we kind of all decide through usage. And it's the same with um, collective nouns. Um, there has never been an authority saying, well, the, you know, the right collective noun for geese is a gaggle. Um, etc. And yes, our primary source, weirdly, is from the 15th century and it's um, something called the Book of St Albans. Um, And we don't completely know who wrote it, but we think it's um, someone called Dame Juliana Berners, who was a prioress um, of a nunnery, um, a Sopwell nunnery, this was in Hertfordshire. And she basically wanted to collect group names for mostly animals 
um, but also some sort of characters who were around um, in those days. But it was essentially so that, um, you know, people going out hunting or hawking or whatever would know what to call a group of ferrets, um, which is mm. busyness, um, or hounds, which was um, a mute and knowing those terms would kind of, you know, it would be part of the etiquette, but also it would distinguish them from, uh, you know, the common folk who didn't know these things. So it was, it was very much the done thing to be aware of these, and they're all they're amazing. They're, they're beautifully kind of wrapped up in superstition um, quite often. So you know, things like the tiding of magpies. Magpies have always had this sort of, you know element of doom about them haven't they unless you see two and we've got so much folklore um surrounding them but um you know a tiding of magpies or a murmuration um of starlings which was inspired by um the the murmuring the sound of the birds when they when they you know congregate in that amazing yeah sort of shadow in the sky um before the murmuration the collective term was in mutation and there was a really odd belief that the starling would lose a leg at the age of 10 and then grow a new one so they would mutate um their legs would mutate which is just extraordinary but that yeah. that was a collective noun so quite often they speak to the beliefs of the time but it's quite extraordinary that we're still using ones from you know 500 years uh, yeah, past yeah. um and once i think i mentioned in the book ones that i would like to to bring back so you know any pub landlord would like a laughter of hostelias for example um or that kind of thing but I, if you if you put anything out on twitter and say what's your favorite collective noun you will get the most lovely inventions coming back so you know people are still inventing new ones for, for new phenomena that weren't around in the 15th century yeah yeah absolutely yeah in, in which case who who would get to decide whether those new ones stick is it just a question of usage you yes know? it's all it's all frequency based so modern lexicography is based on I, the thing I, I have to say well that i object to with lexicography is that all its terminology sounds incredibly boring and the amazing databases that we look at to show trends in language to show which words are bubbling under which words are fading away you know what's being used with what they're called corpora which is like the least friendly term but they are these amazing databases and they will show um you know which which usage is kind of um primary and then eventually if it's obviously um if there's if there's obviously um the sort of popularity of one particular term or one particular phrase that looks like it's showing some longevity it's been quoted in lots of different sources not just one website etc then it stands a good chance of being documented in a dictionary um you know which is quite fascinating but what i love about english as well and i mentioned this in the book quite a lot is that there are so many mistakes from the past that have become the kind of standard um so you know, like nowadays, we are trending towards things rather than tending towards them because of Twitter. So it's quite possible that that will eventually replace tending towards. I reckon mischievous will eventually um, topple mischievous. I yes. don't think we'll put the I in, but you know, if you if I ask when I'm I sometimes do um, theatre gigs and when I ask the audience, you know, do you say mischievous or do you say mischievous? I put, they put their hands up according to which one they use. The younger people all go for mischievous. My daughter uses mischievous as well. Um, and it's because we're rhyming it with devious and all sorts of things like that. Yeah. So language change is fascinating. And quite often it is, in quotes, the wrong version that wins the day. 
because <laughs> there, there is this obsession isn't there about the correct way of pronouncing things yeah. and as you say language changes and the english language is the reason why it's such a brilliant language is because it's always changing it's always finding new words and that's why we have this rich language history isn't it um, yeah we shouldn't be scared of of words like mischievous coming along and sort of kind of being a, as a parent myself kind of going oh, no, 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 that's, that's yes. the wrong way of saying it yeah no we shouldn't be scared and i think um you know i i understand why people have their bugbears and I have them too mischievous used to really get on my nerves and I just just decided to be fascinated by it but instead um <laughs> but um you know another thing that really gets on people's nerves is um h for h but if you look back to um the end of the um 19th century or the 20th century even as well um you'll find that kids were being told to say h because dropping your h's was absolutely not the thing to do or dropping your h's yeah. so you know that was the thing that was correct and it it just comes and goes disinterested uninterested people get really worked up about that one <laughs> you know we've been having that debate for centuries um likewise nuclear versus nuclear clear that debate's been going on way before the simpsons um <laughs> and and so on so sometimes you think well there's nothing new you know if people say i really hate this word or i really hate this americanism i'll go straight to the oed and see that not only was it not american but we've been doing it for the, you know since the 16th century or something yeah i i overheard an argument once where um because particularly in london you'll hear people saying arcs rather than ask yes um, and somebody was getting very worked up about this uh on a bus and i spoke to my sister about this because she's an academic and she said actually if you go back to chaucerian english uh-huh. uh, you will find arcs rather than ask so in fact it's not a modern urban thing at all no and i love the idea that uh modern kids were actually taking english <laughs> back to its roots and speaking chaucerian that's brilliant there is um and also I think it's very much um, part of the kind of, um, you know, the the slang, particularly Caribbean slang, West Indian slang, that is being picked up because it's trendy and it's cool. Mm. Um, So you'll find all those influences coming on as well. But I remember reading a while ago that um, prisoners in one particular jail were were swatting up on their Elizabethan vocabulary so they could start talking in the language of the criminal underworld of of Elizabethan times so that they could kind of, you know, speak in code and not be understood by the guards, which I love the idea of. I have no idea if it's true. Um, but yeah, I, I think, as I say, it's incredibly circular. So some mistakes that you you really, really hate these days are ones that we've been making, if you call them a mistake even for a very long time. Yeah. Um, I remember once when I was younger, I came across a, a very big dictionary in, in my house and did something that I'd never done before, which was literally just to sort of open it up and start reading it just to kind of find new words. Yes. And it was actually whilst I was doing that, I, that I, I learned a whole load of new words, which I can weirdly still remember to this day. Amazing. Including my favourite word, I think, okay. which is peccadillo. <gasps> peccadillo is lo- good and incredibly hard to spell. It's really hard to spell, but yes. I've made the commitment to it now, so I think I know how to spell it. But I love the idea of a sort of, of a harmless sin, um, and it's a great word that you can sort of use at various points in your life. And I just wondered, it's a, a really stupid question to ask somebody who, who works with words so much, as indeed it would be to ask me what my favourite book was, but <laughs> do you have a favourite word like that, one that you just love hearing and using? Yes, I guess I do. I mean, normally, when people ask me this question, I will normally say... Um, it changes every day because honestly it does change so frequently um so for example just you know reading my 
book jacket and checking checking that for errors and things i yeah. just thought oh, i love the word blurb um <laughs> and it's got a lovely history that, that one author um decided to create a character called blinda blurb who was always sort of you know waxing lyrical about about a book um and there was a picture of on the back of his book blinda blurb i just think it's such a good word but the one the one enduring favorite word for me is halcyon I just love the idea of halcyon days. It's such a beautiful sounding word. It's really mellifluous, but it's also because it's got such a lovely story attached to it, um, which is that the halcyon was another name for the kingfisher. And there was a legend um, or myth, really, that the kingfisher would lay its eggs on the water. It would make a nest on the water. And the god of the winds would calm the water um, until the chicks hatched. And so those were the days of complete stillness and a sort of rippleless see um uh, you know in serenity and i just think it's beautiful love that one fantastic uh, anyone reading your book will, will sort of discover words that they don't know and they'll learn the meanings of them and the sort of history of them but also words that they do know or phrases uh, and discover where they actually come from um and one i really loved i suppose partly because of my theatrical past and because of how obvious it actually is <laughs> was the phrase stealing someone's thunder oh, yes would yeah, you mind explaining where that comes from? No, not at all. Also, one word I should put in here, just in case your listeners are picking up on this, is borborygmus. I can never say borborygmus, which is my stomach. I have this problem with every podcast <laughs> that my stomach decides to pipe up, and people are probably thinking, "What is that noise?" Anyway, it's my stomach. So apologies for that. Um, yes, stealing someone's thunder is, um, as you say, as literal an idiom as you could possibly get, and it's. Um, but you, you'd never imagine that it had such a literal beginning. So. So it started off at the beginning of the 18th century um, and a particular incident um, in London's Drury Lane Theatre. And um, essentially, there was um, a, a man called John Dennis. He was a critic, really, but he would produced his own play, which by all accounts was quite turgid. And the only thing going for it was that he had created a machine that replicated the sound of thunder. Um, and quite what the invention was, we're not completely sure, but, you know, there, there's sort of various um, guesses, whether it involved sheets of iron or, or you know, balls rolling around. Anyway, uh, in a drum, I should say. Um, <laughs> anyway, so what happened was the, the play, despite this amazing invention, closed after quite a short run. But he um, he went along to support the, well, we think to support the production <laughs> that replaced his, which was um, Macbeth. And uh, he went along to watch it, was sitting in the audience, and suddenly from the stage he heard the booming sound of thunder, uh, which came from his thunder-making machine, no less. And (laughs) um, two accounts say that he stood up and shouted, damn them, they will not let my play run, but they steal my thunder. Um, it, it is great isn't it and um yeah it's just just amazing his play may not have endured but but that idiom from but, that uh, particular phrase. incident has yeah has, has become yeah. embedded in the language which is great i was also very pleased to see another theatrical one which is the word rhubarb um <laughs> which many people will know is is the word that actors will use if they're sort of background artists and they need to create the sort of sound of background chatter and rather than saying actual words they'll just repeat the word rhubarb rhubarb yes uh, i don't know did you know in fact so i discovered this um that that in other parts of the world, of course, the, that word changes. So a bit like how there are different words for yeah. the noises that animals make. And I discovered that in America, 
they don't say rhubarb at all because rhubarb is actually baseball slang for a fight that happens out oh. on the pitch. Yeah. Oh, I didn't so, know that. Oh, I'm right. Well, yeah. So in America, they say peas and carrots. <laughs> Amazing. I did not know this. Um, thank you. Actually, that would have been a brilliant one to, to add can, to the book. It's that, too late You can now. have that for the paperback. Don't you worry. Yeah, exactly. It's all yours. But yeah, no, <laughs> instead of, I love the idea that it's still food-based, but it's a completely different food. I don't know why that is. That is fantastic. Um, and yeah, I just, I think in the book, I just tied rhubarb into the fact that um, it's a sibling of barbarian um, mm. because it goes back to um, uh, the word for foreign, uh, basically in in Greek times, and and basically the Greeks thought that any foreigner um, spoke in an unintelligible tongue that went a bit like ba 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 ba, and so they called them barbarian. And then rhubarb contains that idea of being a foreign fruit because it was an exotic fruit rather than yes. a homegrown one. Um, so yeah, it's just, I mean, they've just got so much history to them. I think that's what I love that, that really has not just won me over, but kind of obsessed me all my career is just the fact there were so many hidden stories behind the most basic of words, yeah. you know, all these adventures that you just would never guess at if you just skated over them. We should probably look at one very literary one, which I was very pleased seeing there, which is the word wuthering. Oh, um, of course. Yeah. I mean, tell us a little bit about where that that word comes from. Yeah, so um, I didn't, I have to say, I didn't know this until this is part of the joy of writing the book was that um, most of the time I went from a word or phrase and and then thought this would be a good day for that because it chimed with the time of year. But also I was looking at historical events and then thinking, I wonder what word would be a good one to attach to that. And so it was... um, for the day when uh, the film Wuthering Heights, I think, was released um, rather than the book. And then I could I could explore the title and um, Wuthering or Withering is um, a historical word for a blustering or a rushing like the wind. Um, so if you think of, of Bronte country, um, not only would it kind of describe the, the wuthering that she herself might have experienced, but also Heathcliff, of course, um, you know, a stormy, tempestuous person. It seemed like the, the sort of perfect place to describe his house. Um, so, yeah, I, I just loved that one. And actually, there's more of a history to it as well, because Withins in Yorkshire are willow trees um, mm. and um, they're kind of used for binding into um, halters or leashes. So, you know, I think I made some bad joke about wind in the willows. Um, I didn't think it was a bad bo- joke at all. Oh. I thought it was very neatly, you know, oh. lit- you know literary, nicely oh. joined up, I thought. <laughs> well, it's just that's, again, a, a thing that I love is that you just move for it. It's like stepping stones. You go from one thing to another to another. And there are so many strange siblings in in English as well. Um, I was telling my youngest actually about the one between mouse and muscle, the muscle of your body. Um, mm. And those are siblings. And it's because the Romans thought that um, basically a flexing bicep looked a little like a rodent scuttling under the skin. So <laughs> they called them little mice, which I think is amazing. So mus- mus- muscle goes back to little mouse in, in Latin, musculum. Musculus, I should say. Yeah, I know. You'd never, you would never dream it. But, um, but yeah, I just, I love all those. We could, as I said, I go through all three hundred and sixty-six <laughs> words in this book because there is so much fascinating stuff in there. But honestly, Susie, it's just for anybody who likes words, um, it's just a treasure trove of of things. Even when you think you know where a phrase comes from, it turns out that actually you don't, and or, or that it may be far more modern than you you think it is, oh, yeah, um, or indeed. 
far more ancient. Um, <laughs> so I had so much fun reading this book. Um, Thank you. Will. I should. I want to just finish off. Actually, this is a, more of an update, really. So on a previous episode of the podcast, I was talking to Adam Buxton, oh. and we were talking about the the word that is used to describe when you mishear a lyric or a song mm, um, and he used the word yeah Mondegreen mm. so I, I I looked it up after I'd spoken to him to discover where this actually comes from and it yeah. comes from only from 1954 it turns out so Sylvia Wright who's a writer um, spoke about how when she was younger she used to recite Percy's relics mm-hmm. and she misheard the phrase <laughs> laid him on the green as Lady Mondegreen yeah um, which is where this word comes from and it's just I think it's probably my new favorite word having discovered it recently because I am terrible at song lyrics. I'm always getting them wrong. I know. Me too. And for me, I went to a convent and for me, um, Richard Herring would like this one because I think he named one of his tours after this. But it was essentially um, a a hymn called Lord of the Dance, said he. And I would always sing Lord of the Dance, said he. Always. (laughs) Had absolutely no idea what it had to do with sofas. I don't think I questioned it at the time. Um, But yeah, I've got loads of those as well. Uh, That always gets people going. I mean, that's the thing about language. You know, misheard song lyrics, favorite word, least favorite word. You can, you'll just be there for hours. Now, having with what you were saying earlier about needing to be three sheets to the wind and in the dark, um, I'm going to imagine that situation and you as the Lord of the Dance City later on <laughs> this weekend, perhaps. Perfect. Um, Susie, I, I, thank you so much for your time. It's so great to speak to you about this book. And thank you for all you do in Dictionary Corner, if only putting up with Jimmy Carr's horrific introductions <laughs> to you. Uh, you have a fortitude which I have great admiration for. <laughs> oh, thank you. I'm still working on it. Thank you so much, Will. Thanks for having me on. Great fun there with Susie. And our linguistic games continue now with the writer Ellie Williams. You've had time to look up the word Mount Weasel since the introduction, but here's our chat about false words and the difficulty of definition. Ellie, thank you for joining me on the Waterstones podcast. It's a real pleasure to speak to you. Thanks so much for having me. I read your story collection, A Trip and Other Stories, um, many moons ago, it seems now. And in those stories, there's just such a clear love and relish for language, for words and for what the English language can do. And so when I heard you were writing a novel, I was thrilled, first of all, but I was really intrigued to know whether you were going to continue that obsession. And I'm pleased to say that in the Liars Dictionary, you absolutely do. And I've already asked Susie this earlier in the episode, but I, I want to know where your love of language came from. Has it? Have you always been obsessed with words and their meanings and what language can do? Or was it sparked at some point in your life? I definitely think I, I am one of those people who gets lost easily in the dictionary you know you pick it up thinking no I just need it for this one purpose I need to look up one word just to check on myself and then half an hour later you're down some rabbit hole of etymology and and trying out different pronunciations that are alien to you um I don't think there was one kind of inciting (laughs) incident that I can recall that that caused that and I think it's quite a shared um passion although not uh, often spoken about necessarily by people um purely because dictionaries as much as as language dictionaries as uh, kind of putative repositories of language just seem such glorious and frankly weird things the idea that at some point um an editor or a team of people has set out to somehow register or fix language in a way that is parsable just is so ambitious almost to the point of of lunacy um it's also very attractive (laughs) and there's a tension there that I, i think draws me in uh a lot but Yes, language and and also an inability to to communicate well through language always fascinates me. Um, yeah, I think miscommunication is is often just as 
as uh, kind of fertile a ground for, for narrative and for, for tension as anything about how communication is done easily or, or plausibly. I think uh, one thing readers should realise is that your novel, The Liar's Dictionary, is incredibly funny because of that miscommunication of language. Um, you, you have sort of two strands to your story. Um, one character, Peter Winsworth, who is creating this or helping to create this encyclopedic dictionary of, of language and through that process inserting these false words that, that aren't real words and then in the present day we have Mallory who is uh, digitizing the same dictionary and having to find these false words and, and then take them out again um, but the sort of the comedy I suppose with Winsworth comes from his sometimes his inability to communicate effectively shall we say um, let's there, there is a word to describe these false words which is mount weasel why, why did you decide to take this idea of the mount weasel and and create such a brilliant novel from it what, what was so enticing about it i think for me as i say the idea of a lexicographer someone who compiles dictionaries or works on dictionaries they in my mind uh and as a kind of cultural entity they seem like someone quite noble someone with a pursuit of, of truth or or a veracity that that is able to communicate words and a history of words well to, to, a, to a lay person, someone who can then use that language well and correctly. And the mm. idea of these fake words being inserted was just a, a kind of scurrilous version of, of that role, of that lexicographer. And this idea of, of little, um, often very creative and, as I say, weird insertions into a, a dictionary or encyclopedia, a, a work that is supposed to be about fact and yeah. correctness. Um, seemed just uh, kind of Im implausibly fun um, when often when you think about dictionaries it is often about dryness and a certain uh, reserve um, and authority and this idea of as I say kind of scurrilousness mischief even and creativity individual creativity leavening the the body of a of a text um, in the case of, of Winsworth in the novel um, for his own means rather than uh, for the means of a, a copyright trap or something uh, ordained by the by the editing body of the dictionary. Um, it really appealed to me and, and that was was kind of the trigger for the book. As you say, there's a, a creativity at play in the, in the creation of these words because, of course, they often describe something which needs describing and for which there isn't a word. And I, I've picked out some of my favourites because they are just so good. And I want to know whether you did create these words and how you created them. Um, so the first one, which is brilliant for any person who's a, you know, a fan of reading books, is relect oblivious, which is to uh, accidentally rereading a phrase or line due to lack of focus or desire to finish. This is a thing that will be very, very familiar to anybody who reads a lot of books. Where did relect oblivious come from? I mean, as you say, it just felt that it was an experience that we've shared and an experience that is easily recognisable and yet requires a, a phrase or a metaphor usually um, to get across what we mean. So trying to, to pin it down through etymology, through um, kind of parodying what a real lexicographer would do, um, just led me to, you know, mashing together morph morphologically um, different parts of, of words using different languages and source materials as kind of building blocks for this folly of a word um, and and that's where we ended up 
So, you know, start using it today in current <laughs> in current <laughs> commerce and, and discourse and um, it'll, maybe it'll, Susie Dent will be using it on, on Countdown any day soon. Well, in fact, she has said that it is to do with if it's used enough, it will eventually get stuck in the dictionary. So, you know, oh, it, the power great. is in our hands to, to make these real words. Um, another great literary one was, was Agrupt, which was the irritation caused by having a denouement ruined, which many readers will be very aware of. Um, a, a last favourite one was Cassiculation which was the sensation of walking into spider silk, which is just a great sensation, a great word, and just a perfect definition. Why? Where did that come from? Is this something that you are regularly doing that you felt <laughs> that you needed a word for? Yes, I don't know about you, but so this uh, is currently being recorded in September and the spiders are out there hotching and knitting away, <laughs> ready to trap me. Um, that word really was, for me, important because a lot of the characters in the novel... They don't have huge moments of crisis, but they have incidental um, moments of, of confusion and anxiety that are critical to them and crucial to them, almost because of how small and needling they are. There is no great crisis if you walk into a spider's web, and yet that can completely ruin or reroute your day. Um, I think I appealed as a, as a word, as a, as a fictitious word, because I wanted to get across some of the the power and the rhythm of words, um, how that can sometimes be almost onomatopoeic, how gesticulation gives an impression of um, slither and tangledness as a word, just through the sound and the shape of it. Um, And I think that that is some of the the fun that can be had with language and the uh, emotive and sometimes in terms of where it's kind of porched in the mouth, the physical experience of expressing oneself. I, I wanted to kind of play with with that in terms of word creation and, and how that could be expressed. We, we've spoken earlier about how the English language develops and morphs over time. And as we seek to sort of define these changing things in the world in which we live in. Um, and to give it a slightly more human angle, Mallory uh, in the novel, uh, her partner Pip, she often introduces Pip rather than being her sort of partner as being her her flatmate or something like that because she's slightly resistant to being defined by her sexuality. If that does that make sense? Am I getting that right as the reader that that while she is there working on this dictionary and having these words that absolutely define experiences or things, she is resistant to being defined in a particular way. And part of the story of the novel is about her learning to accept who she is. That's quite right, and. I think that's great how how you've delineated that and, and defined that because she's not um, ashamed of what she is, that she's gay, that that word is important to her and that she understands that it's important to Pip too and that to be out and proud using that vocabulary is a powerful and empowered um, thing. However, she is still... Um, worried she is still aware that the power of words is such that actually maybe she doesn't feel able to handle it so she has this anxiety about using words for her identity for who she is and who she might want to be and be assumed to be by other people um so she doesn't feel assured by words anymore she works with this dictionary and yet words for her are a site of anxiety and trepidation rather than clarity and definition um so for her in the novel her arc in a way is coming to terms with terms, coming to terms with how she can be 
um, involved in expressing herself and aspects of, of her personality, of her identity, of her life and relationships with others in a way where she doesn't feel it's a label being applied to her externally. It can be something she can feel empowered by and in charge of. It's a fantastic book, Ellie. As I said, I enjoyed reading it so much because it has that humanity, it has the fantastic humour, um, and of course that clear love of words and language. I presume that uh, your your next writing project will continue to have this sort of engagement with the language that we use every day. I hope so, but you know, if there's a mime show out there that wants a silent libretto, then sign me up. <laughs> Thanks to Ellie and Susie for indulging my own logophilia and thanks to you too for listening. To round off season six next week, I'll be chatting with another familiar face from the TV, Graham Norton, as we talk about his third novel, Home Stretch, in an episode called Secrets. All will be revealed next week. See you then. Mm-hmm.